Doors closing. A while back, when I was in Perth, Australia, I met up with an activist named Joanna Partica. I met her at her apartment building. I'm Jo, nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Good morning. Wow. Feel free to sit wherever you want. Lovely with the light coming in. Joanna kindly welcomed me into a room that I know had only recently been raided by the police after one of her climate protest actions. They confiscated her laptop and cell phone. It struck me to imagine such a peaceful and private place being seen as a threat by the authorities. Or even love them. So my name's Joanna Partica and I'm a an artist and an activist. Um, I also work as a political staffer. In early 2021, Joanna was involved with high-profile activism in Australia with the activist campaign Disrupt Borough Pub. In the video of the action, Joanna walks up to a painting at the Art Gallery of Western Australia with a can of spray paint and a well-used stencil. On top of the painting, she spray paints the three-lobed logo of Woodside Energy. Beside her, her counterpart Desmond Blurton, a Ballardong Noongar man, lays out the Aboriginal flag and begins to speak. I pay my respects to my elders and my ancestors. As I stand here today, artwork that is sacred to our people is being destroyed in Western Australia. Woodside Petroleum is the largest fossil fuel project in Australia. Joanna continued to describe the project. Burra Pub is a $50 billion liquefied natural gas mega project led by Woodside Energy. It involves the development of two new giant offshore gas fields and other petroleum resources. The project is also destroying the climate. We know that the Woodside Burra Pub will emit 6 billion tons of CO2 by 2070, which is 12 times Australia's current when the stakes are this high, more conventional forms of activism don't always bring about the desired change. When we look back on history, it's, it's actions outside of the political system and the electoral system that lead to meaningful change. And everything mm. that we enjoy, all the rights that we enjoy today, are thanks to people taking it upon themselves and making a stand and, you know, saying this is not good enough and we demand better. You're listening to Climate Decoded, the podcast that deciphers climate change communication. We untangle how different narratives illuminate or obscure pathways to climate justice. Today, we're talking about climate activism, what it is, how it works, and how it can work better. It's one of the principal ways the general public can communicate to people in power and encourage others to do the same. I'm Kim, and today I'm here with my co-producer, Lara. Hey, guys. If you're casually aware of climate activism, as I've been most of the time I've been aware of climate change, You've probably heard of Greta Thunberg, the Fridays for Future movement, or seen some headlines about Extinction Rebellion stopping traffic or throwing soup on paintings. But is that really the essence of climate activism? And does it really move the needle on climate justice? So, to start with, we should probably talk about what climate activism is. 
Joanna and I talked about that. Turns out it's hard to encapsulate in just a few words. How would you define climate activism? Um, Oh, okay. Big question. Yes. Um, Or for you, what does it mean to be a climate activist? To me, I think it's it's about bringing the issue to the public's attention. So, in what like whatever means necessary. So, bringing attention to an issue—that's one part of it. And you also spoke to some other activists about this, right? Yeah, I also talked about this with two activists from the African Climate Alliance. We met at a co-working space in Cape Town, South Africa. One of them is Gabriel Klassen, who is a program manager at the African Climate Alliance. It's seeing an injustice, standing up and speaking out, but not only standing up and speaking out about it because it's wrong, but finding the alternative and advocating for that. Climate activism is, you know, the solution is based in systemic change. Systemic change. To understand why that's an important goal and partially why it's been so hard to achieve, we need to look back briefly at the history of climate activism itself. Where did climate activism come from anyway? Well, climate activism is part of an ecosystem of activist movements. So establishing a concrete starting point is difficult. But some people consider it to be the first Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970, because in the US, it launched what's called the Environmental Decade. Within the ecosystem of movements, environmental justice has sometimes gone hand in hand with racial and socioeconomic justice. A lot of environmental activism has been carried out on a local level. There are good examples of this around the globe. The 1973 Chipko movement in India saw the collective mobilisation of women who engaged in direct action to protect and preserve local forest areas. A rural community in North Carolina resisted the US government's offloading of toxic waste onto their land in 1982, drawing national attention. In the same year in Tasmania, a group of environmental activists led a campaign to stop the damming of the Franklin River. Coming up a bit more to the present day, the 2015 Paris Agreement was a key unifying moment for the world's government to set goals on climate action. The youth movement, including Fridays for Future and the work of young activists like Vanessa Nakate and Greta Thunberg, began around 2018 and picked up steam in 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's a bit of how we got to where we are today. And though there has been a lot of good work, Climate activism's origins are not entirely innocent. Climate activism, a lot of the times, can be a child of environmentalism, which is rooted in this idea that uh, persons of color need some white savior to mm. protect their environment, when in fact, for years and years and years, they've been <laughs> stewards for the environment. That's Michelle Maka, Gabriel's fellow program manager at the African Climate Alliance. Michelle comes from a family of activists and a family who has seen sustainability as a normal way of life for generations. So when Michelle got into this work, it was frustrating to see the work her family had always done rebranded as something newly discovered by people who looked nothing like her. So each time I would go like on YouTube to find people who looked like me spreading the gospel that weren't there, I'd have to go like black women, climate activists. And even then, not many people would come up. Um, or like South African, like I needed to find something that connected with my context. 
and it just wasn't there. So Michelle filled the space where she saw there was a need. She became one face of the African Climate Alliance and of the climate justice movement. And for me, I think how I got into the space was needing to see more people who looked like me, sounded like me, shared the same context. The need to have greater representation in the climate justice space is still very real. And in order to feel represented, people need language that speaks to them and reflects their own realities. That's why the language we use around activism matters. Gabriel knows this. They're a communications lover. I have a bit of a comms background as well. And so um, I've always enjoyed taking a document, fat document, reading it, highlighting pieces and disseminating knowledge. And like going into it, breaking it down and saying, cool, does my mother understand it? Mm-hmm. And I take it to my mother every single time. I kid you not. I say, mom, can you understand this? And she's like, um, what does this word mean? I say, thank you. <laughs> and I highlight it. Gabriel explained that the language we use for activism needs to be more expansive. I call myself an intersectional justice activist. And so for me, intersectional justice is seeing not only the person in the middle, but the way that the person's livelihood, their priorities, their environment, their everything connects. It's basically Venn diagram person's silhouette in the middle. And that person's silhouette is not only their circumstance, but their identity factors as well. For example, I'm a non-binary um, you know, bisexual, individual, you know, colored, living in South Africa, like all of these things make up, make up who I am. And, um, the same way that these are things that make up who I am, the individuals that we work with, they all have their own unique identity factors and they all play on the social, economic, the environmental. To create that intersectional climate activism, Michelle said we need to center people especially those most affected by climate change. Because you cannot have a movement that speaks about protecting an environment without protecting people first. They need to be masters of their own narrative. They need to claim their narrative. They need to have space to speak their truth. Uh, They need to be stewards of, of their own experiences. Okay. We've established that climate activism is a pretty expansive thing. Based on what we've learned so far, here's what we mean when we talk about climate activism. It's bringing attention to issues, speaking up against injustice, and pushing for systemic solutions. All related to climate. Right. But climate change doesn't exist in a vacuum. It intersects with social and economic issues and systems of power and oppression. Climate activism has to be about both the global south and the global north. Everyone must be involved. Exactly. So that's the concept behind climate activism. But what does that actually look like? If activism is how people talk to power, how do they do it? Turns out there are a lot of different ways to do climate activism. I talked with an Australian academic to learn more about this. My name is Dr. Robin Gulliver, and I'm a research fellow at Australian National University and the University of Queensland. And I research the antecedents, so what happens to make people engage in climate activism, and then what actually happens afterwards, the consequences of climate action as well. I also asked Robin how she defined climate activism. 
So when we do something with a shared identity as an environmentalist or with a group, an environmental or climate group, and we do it engaging in particular activities um, that have a shared value, like trying to stop climate change, that is when we are engaging in climate activism. That's different from what we might do at home if we want to recycle our, um, our plastic waste or if we want to turn our lights off. Those types of activities we call private pro-environmental behaviours because they're not collective. So climate activism is collectively working together, taking action, trying to change something. Perhaps, then, Robin's observation gives us a red thread to knit together the many manifestations of climate activism, shared identity and shared values. Outward expression of this shared identity and shared values comes through a variety of different practices, and part of Robin's research involves thematically analysing this spectrum of activity. To start, Robin takes a bird's-eye view of the climate activist movement and looks at all the collective actions that environmental groups engage in. From here, she splits the events into five different categories to see which is the most common. The results are rather surprising. So, Kim, I know you're not a gambling woman, but if you had to place money on the most common type of collective action across the climate activist movement, where are you putting it? Hmm, it's true I'm not a gambling woman, but maybe for climate change I'll make an exception. Okay, I mean, straight off the bat, I think I'd put it on protests, but that seems too obvious, right? Yep, you be losing. Robin said that in her research, she actually found something else. The most common activity was a film screening. And there was about 2,500 film screenings, I think, out of the 35,000 um, collection of events. And the reason for that is that a lot of groups are um, they're looking to get people to join them and they're looking to educate people about the problems. The majority of actions by the climate movement are not civil resistance actions. They're about that um, talking to people, information sharing and having social nights and things like that. Fundamental part of activism. Huh, okay. Film screening activities. That definitely wouldn't have been my first guess. What are the other categories and where do protests fit in? Well, the second most common form of collective action is eco-activities. Things like permaculture workshops for your garden, for example. Then it's admin-based initiatives, holding public meetings, sharing petitions, that type of thing. In at fourth is social fundraising events, trivia nights, bingo. And then, fifth and finally, it's protests or civil resistance type actions. So I'm thinking about the activists we talk to. Where do their actions fall among these five kinds of activism? The Disrupt Borup Hub action that Joanna and Desmond were involved in is pretty clear-cut. That's protest. And the African Climate Alliance, meanwhile, does work that fits into a couple different activism categories. It really struck me talking to the two of them how all the work that ACA does is centered around this one thing, education. So they've developed an educational program which prioritizes and fosters Afrocentric climate change literacy to meet the needs of their community. That's one of their central programs, the Back to Basics Workshop. Sounds like a very clear example of activism through information sharing. And what about more protest-type action? Is that something that ACA engages in too? Yes, absolutely. Another large part of ACA's work is their community-based advocacy program. At the moment, for example, ACA is running a cancel coal campaign along with two other environmental justice organizations. The campaign is in support of a court case they're leading against the South African government, demanding that they abandon plans to build 1,500 megawatts of new coal-fired power. So... 
all of these types of activism are pretty different, but they don't function independently from each other. Right. And you talked with another academic about that. Yes. Her name is Dr. Heather Albero, and she's a professor at Nottingham Trent University in the UK, where she studies the more radical side of activism. Commonly, this presents as direct action like civil disobedience. The well-known group Extinction Rebellion offers good examples of this, blocking roadways, gluing hands to pavements. Heather unpacked the idea of direct action a bit more. The point with indirect action is not only to physically stop something from happening, like, for instance, blockading a road to keep a lorry from going to a mining site, uh, but also to, you know, draw attention, get the government talking, get the media and the press sort of involved, get the public to see what's happening. Um, That's kind of the point, create a lot of noise. So the Disrupt Borough Pub action that Joanna was involved in is an example of arguably more radical direct action, spray painting in an art gallery. Exactly. And radical activism impacts more moderate types of activism. That's called the radical flank effect, which Heather explained. That's the idea that that kind of, um, the radical flank furthers um, the sort of palatability of the more mainstream organizations in the eyes of governments and corporations and things like that. That juxtaposition means that more radical activists refusing to back down can have a big impact, not just on the front lines they're focusing on, but also on more mainstream climate justice work. Right. So all those kinds of activism impact each other, even though they can occupy different niches and address different issues. And they're all necessary because, like we all know, climate change is a pretty massive deal. Tackling it is going to take everything we've got. So we've got all these different types of activism. But when I was talking to Joanna and Michelle and Gabriel, everyone mentioned the same issue. How do you know your activism will have an impact? Joanna was grappling with this when planning and carrying out the Disrupt Borough Pub action. I believe that what we're doing is effective and it's having an impact, but in the moment you don't really know and before you undertake an action you're like, I mean, we go into it wholeheartedly. We wouldn't do these things if we weren't committed to it and didn't think that they would have a positive impact, but um, you don't really know down the road if in five years or 50 years, if it's going to be, um, if it's going to have, you know, affected the, the timeline of the world in any way, or at least changed enough minds to then change the trajectory of the world. It can be hard to conceptualize the impacts of climate activism and what it is that you definitively want to change. That's hard because climate change itself is hard to conceptualize. It is such a gigantic concept. Oh, there's a word for things like this, hyperobjects. Hyperobjects are concepts that are so huge, so intrinsically strange that it's really, really hard to wrap your head around them. Timothy Morton, a professor at Rice University in Houston, Texas, wrote a whole book on the idea of hyperobjects and climate change. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes. In the book, hyperobjects are described as entities of such vast temporal and spatial dimensions that they defeat traditional ideas about what a thing is in the first place. For example, phenomena or events such as climate change, black holes, the solar system are all classed as hyperobjects. They are absolutely real, but they are so massively distributed in space and time that it's impossible for us as humans to grasp them in their totality. The fact that climate change is a high project can be paralyzing. That's one of the reasons why some people just throw up their hands about climate change. 
Robin Gulliver said it creates trouble for activists too. Well, it probably affects groups engaging in climate activism because they would recognise that you can't do something about this hyper-object, really, in totality. It's it's neither possible for people to grasp intellectually nor possible for people to really do anything meaningful about. And we know that that those feelings of being overwhelmed or overcome by the scale of the problem are really counterproductive for activists. If you're trying to do activism related to a mind-bending hyper-object like climate change, you have a couple of options. One option is to give up and say, it's just too big, we're all screwed. But we're not going that route. That doesn't get us out of this mess. The other option is to break the concepts into more manageable chunks. It's a bit like my children and when I was a teacher... If you tell them a whole bunch of instructions all at once, like I want you to do all of this in the next hour, it's too much, right? You forget what you're going to do and you forget the point of it. But if you break it down and say, could you first get the potatoes out of the cupboard and then, you know, peel the potatoes and boil them, do that and then I'll say thank you and we can move to the next bit, (laughs) then you get the feeling of achievement as well as you're doing things. Now, Environmental groups can use that strategy by breaking down their actions into things that are local and things that have a tangible outcome. That outcome, Robin mentioned, is what Joanna was grappling with earlier. Once you've broken things down into manageable chunks, how do you know if you're having an impact? So Robin has studied thousands of Australian activist groups and their campaigns, and their impacts depend on the granularity you look at. Do you look at the outcome of a particular event, like a rally? Or do you look at the whole campaign or even everything a group has ever done? Those are all equally valid questions, but they'll all result in different answers. Establishing causal links between what an activist group does and a particular outcome will require massive amounts of data. And Robin's working on that. In the meantime, there's a surprisingly simple tool for measuring activists' impact. Just ask them what they were hoping to achieve in the first place. It's easy to be an outsider and see a protest, a big protest that happens and then say, well, oh, that didn't do anything, did it? It wasn't successful. It's easy to make that claim. But depending on who the people are in the group engaging in the climate activism, they can all have very, very different outcomes they want to achieve. Climate activist goals run the gamut. Climate activists have different topics, targets and tactics. Michelle from African Climate Alliance explained that not all of these goals are measurable. And that's okay. I think it it is difficult in the spaces that we're in and in the work that we do to measure success by like numeric metrics. That's very, very difficult. Um, like especially with our education program, how do you know once this person has this education, they're going to do something with it? What we have seen though is uh, networks and groups forming from people who had either been consistently forming part of these groups and attending these workshops. I think recently we were told that someone has been able to successfully mobilize 150 people in their country. Um, And we would count that as a success uh, because the, the, the movement doesn't belong to us. Broadening the network of who cares, of who's in this fight, is a goal in and of itself. Robin confirmed this through one of her research projects. She talked to activists about what keeps them going. Pretty much unanimously, they said it's because of the relationships and community they've built through activism. When we talk about the success of climate activism, whether it's effective, we often 
don't think at that relationship level whether that's an, a, an outcome that we want to go for, right? We want to solve climate change. We want climate change to stop. But actually, we can't do that if we lose all of our volunteer activist leaders because they're burnt out or they're just, it's just too much for them. So there's many, many different outcomes that people can aspire to achieve and thousands and thousands of groups. You may not be able to measure it, but we know that if they hadn't been doing that stuff, then nothing would have changed on climate change at all, right? So what I'm hearing is that the best way to ensure your activism has an impact is to set goals. And achieving those goals is one definition of successful activism. And bonus points if you also have stepwise sub-goals, like Robin's kids first peeling the potatoes before boiling them. That way, you know how you're moving along and you know you're having an impact, even while on your way to your larger goal. The feeling of achievement, feeling like you're capable of doing something that makes a change, is a really important psychological motivator of engaging in climate activism. So the more you can foster that, even with the knowledge that this hyper object is out there in the bigger picture, the more you can actually foster feelings of achievement in the smaller level, the more likely people are to continue on engaging in climate activism. Okay, say you and your fellow activists set goals about what you want to see changed. Maybe you want your university to divest from fossil fuels, or maybe you want to stop your local forest from being replaced by oil palm plantations. You follow steps to reach those goals. You work on building knowledge, capacity, and community. You hold workshops, you stage protests, people start listening. But what if it fails? What if you don't meet your goal or you discover those goals change? What then? Well, you can't pack up and go home. Change still needs doing. Luckily, just because an activist group failed to meet its goal or some part of its goal doesn't mean that nothing good came of all that effort. Robin told us about this really well-known coal mine case in Australia called Adani. It's in northeastern Australia near the Great Barrier Reef. In the end, the mine unfortunately is still going forward, but that doesn't mean the activism work to stop the mine wasn't worth it. So you could say that that's a failure, and yet it actually had a huge range of successes in terms of raising awareness about coal. The mine's much smaller. Many contractors and banks and insurance companies said they wouldn't fund coal, et cetera, et cetera. And the main way they raised awareness was through film screenings. It led to huge awareness building, even and especially for people like Joanna on the other side of the country. These are secondary successes. The impact of activism may not be immediate, immediately visible, or linear. So the judgments of success or failure also have a important sort of time component. You have to be clear. In the short term, something's a failure, but maybe in the mid to long term, it's going to be success. If even after all your efforts, your activism ends up in abject failure and has no impact on anything at all. Which of course, again, is probably definitely not going to happen, given what we know about the ecosystem of activist work. But even if everything you've done does go tits up, even that is useful information. Failure is an important data point. Robin should know. She studied it. We did a systematic review on all the studies that we could find that wrote about the outcomes of any environmental collective action. So we looked through all of the research fields and we tried to find as many papers as possible that had written an article or some done some research on the outcome of an environmental collective action. Robin and her team found 113 examples of studies from across the world. Almost all of them focused exclusively on activism that succeeded in its goals. Only three of them actually focused on environmental collective action 
or activism that had failed. So there's a real bias to looking at activism, which is defined by these researchers as success. If we don't look at what fails, we're not going to find out what succeeds. If we don't look at what fails, we're not going to find out what succeeds. We've talked a lot about some of the failures of climate activism. I mean, there's the history and present of climate change and climate activism to contend with. And as we've seen with Joanna, sometimes protesting involves risks, like arrest and further unwanted attention from the police. And as Joanna noted, she is one of the privileged protesters who can afford the time and space to risk getting arrested. Other people, perhaps who are more impoverished or people of colour, may not be able to take that risk, even though they may be more affected by climate change. The Global North is responsible for 92% of excess global carbon emissions and climate change widens pre-existing global inequalities. And yet, a lot of conversations about climate change and activism focus on the impacts in the Global North and the activism work of the Global North. That means there are a whole lot of people who have been kept out of the conversation. Kim, what does the path to better climate activism look like? So if we're thinking about this in terms of establishing goals in activism, one of the biggest goals is what we talked about earlier, getting better at intersectionality. For activism to be successful on a grand scale, it's got to involve a lot more people and take into account a lot more issues. I talked with Heather about this. She's a professor we spoke to earlier about radical activism. We were talking about an activist who was quoted in an interview saying, oh, you should just take a day off work and join us. And that's just not possible for everyone all of the time. A lot of people don't have that luxury. uh, And that's why fighting climate change is inextricable from the fight to um, uh, economic, wider economic transformation. So fighting capitalism, tackling extreme inequality, tackling extreme wealth taxing the super rich so that they cannot live the lifestyles that are jeopardizing millions around the world. So these things have to be connected. The concept of intersectionality is is essential for the success of the movement, for its inclusiveness. And it's much more powerful when when you connect these things together. Like we said at the top, climate activism is one of the principal ways the general public can communicate to people in power about climate change. And we can't do that if we don't have everyone at the table with all of their unique experiences. Gabriel, the intersectional justice activist we heard from earlier, talked about this in the context of the African Climate Alliance's work. Africa has a voice. She has a narrative, but that's never been focused on. So the way we can help those in the diaspora is by helping elevate the voice, elevate that narrative that this continent has to bring addressing its challenges and its injustices. Africa is not an homogenous, you know, we're not like the country of Africa. It's it's the countries of Africa and it's many different experiences and it's many different communities and it's many different individuals. The movement has to take everyone into account. It has to mirror the world we want to create. And having that understanding makes the movement stronger because this is all so much bigger than any one person. If I fall today... If the movement stops, then the movement was built in the wrong way. If Greta Thunberg falls tomorrow and the world stops thinking that climate justice is something that we should care about, then the movement has been built the wrong way. 
Because guess what? We are all part of the same movement. We are just spokes in the wheel. And like we talked about earlier, having that community, all those spokes on the wheel, is often what keeps people in activism. Yeah, you need the community support. Because activism can be exhausting sometimes. And burnout is a real issue. But the work is still so important. Michelle, Gabriel's co-worker at African Climate Alliance, talked about this. I really, truly believe that if I could have it any other way, I would not be an activist. I just would like to exist, run around and paint and drink coffee and not have to worry about everything. I don't necessarily see my work in the space as a product of passion. I see it as a necessity. An activist can do that necessary work best when they're supported and fulfilled and happy and healthy and rested. Yeah. Michelle talked about how rest is part of resistance. I think it really is about being more intentional about integrating rest into your practices and reframing rest as a very big part of activism itself. It's not just about the fighting, it's also about the resting and re-energize self. So that's the goal. Well-rested, sustainable, intersectional climate activism with everyone doing their different types of activism from the academics to the protesters to the film screeners. Because you can't just install liberation. Movements build on each other and each type of activism fertilizes the ground for others. Heather said it's going to take all of us to make radical change. This is um, an ongoing fight that is going to be hard, but, um, well, the alternative is worse. It gets a sort of political um, apathy. This is a struggle and a fight that kind of requires every tool in the shed that we have. And I very much, I intend for my work to further radical change. I don't want it to sit there idly and... uh, Uh, Yeah, I wanted to try to (laughs) shake things up. recorded this episode, life has carried on. Joanna and Disrupt Barrett Pub celebrated a landmark decision from the Federal Court of Australia, who ruled that Woodside Energy no longer has approval to conduct seismic blasting at its Scarborough Gasfield site. And at African Climate Alliance, there have been celebrations too. Their cancel coal court case continues to gain traction, with South Africa's Minister of Electricity now added as a defendant. We'll pop some links in the show notes so you can keep up with what's happening with them. In parallel to this, there have been a slew of anti-protest laws brought in across Australia and also in other democratic nations who have at least nominally prided themselves for their protection of citizen freedoms like freedom of speech and freedom to protest. These laws include huge fines and even prison terms against anyone perceived to be participating in an increasingly loosely defined illegal protest. Climate activists may be seen more and more as domestic terrorists. Fighting for the right to demonstrate freely about the climate may shape up to be an additional frontier for climate activism in the coming years. The roads and inroads to climate justice may be difficult, but there are many people continuing to walk them and make progress. And on that note, we'll leave you where we started. 
Walking Among the Birds in Perth, Australia. I'm walking through the park next to Joanna's apartment after doing the little interview with her and reflections on our conversation just yeah how um how one person's determination can make a big difference and how you think you can't do something but then um after you take that first step the next step and the next step each become easier listening to Climate Decoded. This episode was produced by Isabel Bodish, Chantal Kauf-Schultz, Greg Davies-Jones, Lara Davies-Jones, Kim Kenny, and Jens Vendel Hansen. More info about this episode, a transcript, and resources can be found in the show notes and on our website, climatedecoded.com. Follow us on all the socials on Instagram, LinkedIn, and the place formerly known as Twitter at climate underscore decoded. If you'd like to support the show, please hit that follow button on your podcast pipe of choice and drop us a rating or review. It honestly makes a big difference in enabling other people to find the show. You can also consider subscribing to our Patreon channel. For $5 a month or about the cost of a cup of coffee, you can really help out the podcast. And with that subscription, you'll also get exclusive content and more behind the scenes about our episodes. A final great way to support the show is simply referring it to a friend. It really helps us grow our audience and get more people thinking and talking about and acting on climate change, which is ultimately our goal with Climate Decoded. Talk again soon.